Hello, amazing parents and caretakers, and welcome to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. I'm your family empowerment coach, Celia Kibler. I'm a mom of a blended family of five kids. I'm a grandma of nine kids, an author, a teacher, a speaker, and a consultant with over 40 years of training and real-life parenting experience. I'm here to offer you practical, doable tips, strategies, and techniques that will pump up your parenting skills and create peace, love, and laughter throughout your family. In addition, I'll be interviewing some great humans that are on a mission to make your life a better, happier, and healthier life. So let's not waste any time and get started with the next episode of the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Today, my guest is Amanda Gorman, and I'm excited for you to hear from her because You know, in this world, we go through a lot of stuff. We all have stuff. I mean, and we all try to conquer that stuff. And here is a woman that's been through stuff and come out the other side to talk about it. And she's willing to talk about it. So I hope you guys, you know, the ones that are struggling with similar problems that she's been through, feel like you're not alone and you're able to come through it and conquer it and be a wonderful human even in spite of where you think you're being faulty, you're, you know, you're being bad or whatever you want to say. I don't like the word bad, but um, I hope you find this very informative and I'm excited to welcome Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hello. So so before we get started, let me tell you who Amanda is. She is a childbirth educator. She is the host of the podcast, Finding Your Village. And she is the wife and the mommy of two. And I've brought her here today to talk to you about where she's been and, of course, where she's going, where she's at and where she's going. But she has had an addiction that she would like to talk to you about. And so that if you're experiencing it or you know someone who's experiencing it and you would like to reach out, get help, find help or offer help. You might just find what you need here today. So, Amanda, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about you and how your addiction came to be? Absolutely. And first off, just wanted to say thank you so much for having me. And thank you for inviting me on your show and listening to my story with compassion and kindness. I really appreciate it. So um, I live just outside Atlanta, Georgia with my family. I have a half-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old. The half is very important to both of them. <laughs> um, Isn't that and, funny? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I have a little girl and a little boy, and I'm married to my husband, Chris. And um, I am a recovering marijuana addict. So I'm going to just come right out and sh- share about how I came to understand that I actually was an addict and how this was a problem in my life. And then um, I would be happy to share about, you know, a little bit about my recovery journey and how that has impacted me, how that has impacted my marriage and my parenting. Most importantly. Absolutely. I love it. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's being addicted is number one, not an easy thing to recognize. It's not. Because you think you're doing great. I mean, and especially I feel like with marijuana, because there are so many people that can just operate normal everyday lives and they're not falling down like with alcohol. They're not wobbling. They're not, you know, Mm -hmm. they're they're functioning. They're functioning people every day. And and millions of them roaming the earth that are smoking marijuana every single day to get yes. through their day or to what they think they need to get through their day. Exactly. So, um, so how did this, addi- when, I guess I should say, did this start before you got married? Like, when did this addiction start? Yeah. You know, if you want to talk a little bit about that. 
Sure. Uh, and I totally agree with you. It is a very hard thing to recognize in yourself if you are addicted and especially to marijuana for the exact reason that you just mentioned and the fact that it is seen as um, it's medicine to some people. I mean, I don't I've never heard of anybody drinking alcohol medicinally <laughs> um, and with the legalization, you know, there's a lot of kind of politics with it. Um, and so to be to come out and say I'm addicted to this could be misconstrued as I'm against this industry right. or against this concept. And to be clear, I am not. I am actually pro legalization, oddly enough, but that's a completely different conversation. Um, but I do think it's important to say that just like with alcohol, for example, um, a lot of people can drink a glass of wine or two and be totally fine and handle it. Some people cannot, uh, they cannot handle it. They are addicted and they're alcoholics. It's similar, it's not the exact same, um, but 9% of marijuana users on average will become addicted, which means that 91% will not. So 91% of the people who use it recreationally don't have a problem. Um, so just to be clear that I do not vilify the use of this, I just do not use it anymore myself because I consider myself addicted. Um, so to go back to kind of where this started, my story with pot started like a lot of people's. I started smoking a little weed in college. A lot of people do that. Um, you know, you start to kind of experiment. I was a pretty goody two shoes kid in high school and I didn't do a whole lot of partying or anything. Um, and so when I got to college, I kind of, you know, let loose a little bit and uh, started, you know, smoking a little weed. And I, and I also started drinking a little bit of alcohol and I liked smoking weed so much more than drinking alcohol, uh, I think, because I have a lot of anxiety. And so it just quieted my mind that was busy overanalyzing everything. And I have some social anxiety, so it helped calm that down. And so I was able to be a little bit more natural and present with my friends. Um, and I liked the, um, the bonding activity of it. Uh, usually you're kind of sitting in a, a small group of people and you're having, you know, deep conversations, man. And, um, as opposed to drinking, which can kind of, right. I don't know, it can kind of span the gamut. Right. Um, so I, I kind of dabbled in that for, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, and then my frequency of use became more frequent. Um, and to the point where by the time I was a senior in college, I was smoking morning to night, every mm. single day. And, and that's a pretty expensive habit. It was, it was a, it, it was a very expensive habit. And I mean, then there's the whole legal aspect of it. When I went to college, I went to college in Chicago. It was not legal back right. then. Um, and so that was a risk that I was willing to take because I wanted to use the substance so much. Um, and the thing about weed and addiction is that it's very insidious. It just kind of slowly creeps up on you. And like you said, a lot of people can be quite highly functioning, no pun intended, but right. you know, you can kind of do your normal everyday um, life activities without a whole lot of consequences. That's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. Uh, and so that was definitely the case for me. I was still quite high performing um, in my academic career. I worked all throughout college and, you know, part of it was I needed to pay for school. And then part of it towards the end was to pay for buying weed. So, um, so I kept smoking until about my mid twenties and it was just part of my lifestyle. Like I identified um, as a stoner and, but what was interesting is that I identified as like a secret stoner. So only a small circle of people in my life knew about this because I wanted to be professional. I worked for software companies um, in, in sales and then in account management. And I wanted to come across as very professional, buttoned up. Um, but then, you know, at night I would go home and hit bong while watching netflix and eating right. dinner did which... you smoke before ever did you smoke in the morning before you went to work 
Um, not always. Sometimes I did. Usually my pattern would be I would start a job, get really excited about it, be into it and be, you know, completely sober and present. And then when things would start to wane and I would become disinterested or I would get frustrated, then I would start to use before I would go to work um, and then after work as well. But I would say that was the minority of the time that I was working, which is also one of the reasons why I didn't think that I had a problem because most of the time I was able to kind of put it in a container and contain my use. But then um, around my mid twenties, my husband and I got engaged and then married and we were married for um, like a year and a half before we decided to have kids. And a year before we decided to try to have kids, we discussed the fact that we needed to stop smoking weed, that I wasn't, I didn't want to be, I, I, I drew the line at being pregnant and using, if I was going to stop alcohol, it just made complete sense to not smoke weed during pregnancy. Smoke weed as well? Yes. Yeah, he did recreationally. Um, yeah. And so, and he's one of the 91% that can take it or leave it. Do it. Right. Yep. Um, and what's interesting about that is when we decided to stop, he just stopped. Not really a big deal. He was like, yeah, I can't sleep very well, whatever. <laughs> I, for me, I had a really hard time stopping, a really hard time. Um, and I thought it was just like this ingrained habit. I thought it was just because it helped me sleep so well, which it did. Um, but it was, come to find out, you know, 10 years later, it was, it was more than that. So uh, I did stop. We both stopped smoking. And then a year later, um, or a little less than a year later, I got pregnant with my daughter. And so I was sober, quote unquote, sober for three years. And I say um, sober with quotes around it because this wasn't intentional to be sober or to go through recovery. I always had the intention of, you know, smoking at a later time in my life. Um, I just was abstaining for the health of my baby um, and to focus on motherhood. So after I weaned my daughter from breastfeeding when she was about a year old, um, I decided to reward myself with smoking a little weed. <laughs> and so I um, picked up the habit for about two months again, but I, it was just at nighttime. And I equated it to instead of having a nightly glass of wine, like a lot of moms do, I had a nightly bowl and, you know, helped me sleep. My daughter was sleeping through the night at that point. Um, I thought that, you know, the way that I was doing it was responsible. And I do still believe that. Um, so then we repeated that entire cycle. We decided we wanted to have another child. And so I stopped smoking. Months and months later, we got pregnant. And I was abstinent from smoking weed for two, two and a half years. And then when my son was almost one years old, that was in uh, November of 2019, we did the exact same thing of, hey, let's reward ourselves for being so good and um, smoke a little weed. So we did that with every intention of following the exact same pattern and tucking it away, potentially even having, having a third child. Um, so literally following the exact same pattern. Well, then the pandemic hit in March of 2020. And that was all the excuse that I needed to keep smoking. I was like, oh no, like I can't imagine having another child. I can't imagine um, dealing with life in how uncertain it is right now without this crutch, without this coping mechanism. Like uh, my children's preschool has been taken away. My you know safety and security, I feel like has been taken away. And I'm not giving this up, like no way, is, was the thought that went through my head. So not only did I keep using, but then the frequency increased again, like it did in my 20s. But this time I was in my early 30s and I had two little kids. So um, what was a nightly habit turned into an afternoon habit while they were napping and then turned into a lunchtime habit. And then by a year ago, by the end of summer last year, I was again, smoking from morning till night. Mm. Um, and things went downhill really fast. I mean, I just didn't care about much of anything. And that's not helpful when you're a mom, especially with <laughs> toddlers. They have a lot of needs. And although I was fulfilling all of their physical needs, um, emotionally, I wasn't available. I wasn't available for anything because when I smoked weed, I was numbing all of my feelings. And so that's something that I'm sad about 
grieve in my recovery. Um, and thankfully, I have taken a lot of steps to repair that relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my recovery, there is on one hand grief and being sad that I wasn't the mom that they deserved. And then also having grace for myself of saying, okay, you can turn it around, you can do better and you are doing better. So that's been a really challenging part of this whole process. Um, but last fall, I just hit a bottom. That's kind of, that's what they call it in recovery. And no, I didn't, you know, end up in jail and no, you know, I wasn't fired and it wasn't like a catastrophic story. Like some people might think of when it comes to hitting your bottom, hitting your rock bottom in addiction. But for me, it was there. I didn't have any, you know, real strong feelings about anything. I couldn't be emotionally available for anyone, including myself, not my kids, not my husband. Um, So our marriage was really suffering. Um, You know, my relationship with my kids was suffering. I ended up quitting my job because I just could not handle work. Um, I couldn't handle all of the stress of being in the pandemic for, I think it was six or seven months at that point. And things were just really rough and I couldn't emotionally regulate. So what's interesting about my experience in smoking weed and and doing it so frequently is that at first I used it with the intention of self-medicating my anxiety. But when I got to a point where I was using morning to night, it made my anxiety worse, ironically. So it wasn't helping that. I started having, um, I started feeling very depressed uh, sad, hopeless, irritable, all of those kind of classic depression symptoms. And so what did I do to try to handle that? I smoked more, more. Uh, and more. that made it worse. Now I was trying <laughs> to cope. I was trying to do the best that I could. And so again, this is where that, you know, self-compassion and grace comes in. Um, but it wasn't working. And so I had to come face to face with the fact that it wasn't working. And what's interesting about 2020 is that I realized that I learned three main takeaways from 2020 that was like my life lesson for the year. And they came in order. And the first one was self-compassion. At the beginning of the year, I literally heard the word self-compassion over and over. I would read it in different places. I would see it, people talking about it on Instagram. I would, you know, just hear it, see it all the time. And it was like, huh. Um, and I really didn't believe in self-compassion. I was like, you just got to push through and you got to challenge yourself and you just got to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and just work hard was kind of my mentality. And, and I don't have a great, um, I've never, I, unfortunately I've come to realize that I've not had a great relationship with myself that I didn't see the value in really liking myself or loving myself. Um, self-care to me was looking good, like aesthetically, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. about really taking care of me. So self-compassion was the first thing I learned. And then after that, and I decided to kind of be curious about that then the next thing that i had to learn about was curiosity and so that word kept popping up everywhere like everywhere it was annoying how often i kept hearing about the 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 theme of being curious and how important it is and i thought that people who who were curious were like nosy yeah and that um you know if you just don't ask questions then you won't get in trouble or you won't ruffle feathers. Um, I didn't think I had the right to be curious. So that was a really interesting transformation of just receiving this message. Okay. Self-compassion. All right, fine. I'll, I'll take a look. Um, curiosity. Okay. I'll maybe, uh, be curious that that's not a completely bad thing. And then the last thing that the universe kept sending my way or God kept sending my way, you know, however you want to look at it was uh, sobriety. So that concept and that word kept popping up in my life. And I would find out that certain people that I knew, um, whether they be a public figure or someone in my community, I would find out that they were sober or that they had practiced sobriety for years. Um, And 
so that was the most annoying concept to learn and give into. And so that all three of those is what led me to the fall of last year and me just kind of putting my hands up and saying, all right, I surrender. I give up. Like, this is not working for me anymore. I need to do something. And I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to like curl up in a ball and hide. Um, but I love my children immensely. And I decided not to curl up in a ball and hide for them, for my husband as well. Your and husband then, sticks with you through all of this? Yes, thankfully. Um, he has been wonderfully supportive. And I, yeah, I cannot, you know, appreciate his support enough. We went through very difficult moments. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, and and there was just, it was just a long journey, but I, you know, I ultimately decided to do this first for my kids and then for him and then finally for me. Um, so I uh, got sober on, I stopped smoking. Uh, my sobriety date is October 4th and threw my stash away and was like, didn't necessarily know that what I was doing was being sober forever. I just was like, I have to stop smoking weed. This is not working for me anymore. And I was sober for six days and it was the worst six days ever. I mean, the withdrawal symptoms, the physical withdrawal symptoms for marijuana is not a joke. Uh, I, a lot of people aren't familiar with it or they are surprised and they hear like, really withdrawals. Um, they kind of, even in the recovery circles, um, marijuana recovery and marijuana anonymous is like the redheaded stepchild of recovery yeah. and 12 step <laughs> programs. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but there, the withdrawal symptoms are very real, uh, insomnia, loss of appetite, uh, depression and anxiety, feeling all your dang feelings again, uh, that can be really overwhelming. And it's just, it's really hard to deal with uh, physiologically, mentally, and emotionally. So after six days, um, I think my higher power swooped in and said, all right, I'm going to help you. You don't have to do this alone. And so I was just having a meltdown and a really hard time and was just so in, in a not good place. And um, I had heard of Marijuana Anonymous like a month before someone had mentioned that their daughter was checking that out. And so that's how I even knew it was a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. Like, okay. So that was like a seed that was planted in my subconscious for me to then, you know, cultivate. Yeah. In that moment. So, um, six days later, I guess it was October 10th, I was here in my office and I was just so upset. And it's like my fingers took over and just typed in the keyboard, marijuana anonymous online meeting. And there was a meeting happening right then. It was a women's wow. meeting and it was 7.15 Eastern time. And I just remember like seeing all these squares of women and I didn't talk. I just listened. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, they keep sharing my story like they're talking about their life but that that's me that's exactly how i feel like i can't believe that she's articulating exactly how i feel and and what i've gone through like that's so weird and kind of funny right. um and i also remember feeling relieved that i finally had found this place and i feeling a little bit like why hadn't i found this before <laughs> like it would have been so nice if I could have found this earlier, you weren't ready, you but I wasn't ready. That's right. Ready. And, and now I believe that I found it at the exact right moment. Um, but that's what I, that's what was going through my head. Right. Yeah. And it's nice to find people that, you know, can understand. And because in so many situations you think yours is special in its own oh, yeah. way. There, yeah. you know, no one else is going through this. You know, anyone addicted to anything has that feeling. Of, oh, yeah. You know, my my story is different. You right. know, I, I, I get that with with people, you know, as a parenting coach, I always hear you haven't met my kids. I've yeah. known kids for 40 years. I've worked with every <laughs> kind of kid there is for 40 years. I've pretty much met all the kids, there are, you know. <laughs> Every child's different, but everything in its own right is the same. 
Yep. And for addiction, sure, every, you know, your life is different from someone else's, yeah. but the addiction and the qualities of that addiction and what it's doing to you are going to be similar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Other people that are dealing with the same thing. Exactly. And like the mental justification that you make for why you need to use or why you should use just one more time. Um, very, very similar. And I am really appreciative of Marijuana Anonymous specifically because um, each addiction has its own kind of themes in common. And so I, I've also heard from a lot of people that are in the rooms of like, I started in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a fantastic program and what our program is based off of. Um, but they would say something to the effect of, I didn't really feel like they got me. And so coming into the rooms where literally you're suffering from the same addiction to the same substance, there's even more camaraderie and commonality that can be found in those rooms. So I am super appreciative of that. Um, So I thankfully have stayed sober since October 4th. Um, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, Relapse is a real thing. I think it's like 80 to 90% of people who have an addiction relapse. And so I don't want to downplay that. I, I have today, just today, um, as we say in recovery. And so, yes, I do have almost nine months, but ultimately I'm just going to be thankful for every single day of sobriety that I Absolutely. have. Yeah. And um, I still go to MA meetings weekly. I mean, like several times a week and they're now like an extension of my family. Um, they're way, way, way different because it's private. It's anonymous. Um, but it's, it feels really good to show up in a Zoom room with a bunch of people that know me, are glad to see me there. I know their struggles and it's just the authenticity and the honesty that is found in that space and in that community is unlike anything that I have ever experienced before. It's so wonderful because, you know, as we know, especially with the legalization of pot that's going on now, there's so much judgment and criticism. Oh, yeah. And so much that people aren't even willing to find out. You know, yeah. I, you know, I hear people that are like, well, do you think the medical use of marijuana is okay. I'm like, we have the medical use of morphine. <laughs> right. Medical use of marijuana is a bad thing. I mean, yeah. look at all the drugs that we have medical use of. Right. But it doesn't mean that there is not going to be a problem with it like there is when alcohol was made legal. Right. We have people that drink alcohol every day and they're perfectly fine. They have a glass of wine yeah. with dinner or, you know, or they socially drink and there are people that have a glass of wine with dinner and then another glass, another glass, and they can't stop. Exactly. And the same will happen with marijuana being readily available. I mean, obviously yeah. people get it when they can get it, you know, yeah. and my mom had ALS and died of ALS and we couldn't, I so wanted to get her some because there were all these studies that that were um, so positive about the medical use of marijuana. She still couldn't get it approved through her doctors. We were trying to find, I mean, we're not, you know, nobody, nobody in our family, we don't have any connections, you know? So, (laughs) so, and, and she was actually even willing to try, uh, which we were surprised about, but um, you know, unfortunately she passed on before we could really get her that kind of help. But, you know, like anything, there are benefits and then there's taking it to the extreme and you can do any, you know, it's, you know, there's, you know, that's the problem with screen time nowadays, you know, there's all these benefits, but you can take it to the extreme. And when you go to the extreme on something like marijuana, it's nice that you were able to find, you know, marijuana anonymous and that 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 is there and it is a real thing and it's you know it's you know I I, I think of comedians and um the I don't know if you've ever heard Dennis Leary um his his stand-up it's old called No mm-hmm. Cure for Cancer. 
It's uh-huh. hysterical. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you have <laughs> not watched Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer, you can find it. Actually, I think it was on Netflix or something recently, but it's hysterical if you want a good laugh. And, you know, you can't worry about being socially correct because that's not happening. Yeah. But he's like, he talks about how when they went to college and he's like my age when I went to college, you know, people would build bongs and, you know, they would build them out of anything. And he goes, you know, people go that marijuana leads to heroin. He goes, it doesn't lead to heroin. It leads to carpentry. (laughs) And he goes, so I didn't smoke because I didn't want to build stuff. But, you know, there's all these jokes about it and all where where there should be. I mean, laughter is the best medicine. It is. But there's also, I think, like you were saying, this belief that you can't be addicted to it. You know, that you can be addicted to a lot of things, but you can't be addicted to marijuana. And I personally know people that, you know, like you can't go through a day without it. Yeah. And that's an addiction, you know, believe it or not. Yes, it's marijuana. And gratefully, it's a pretty, you know, kind of mundane drug. But you can get addicted to it just like you can get addicted to anything else that you take to the extreme. Right. um, So. So you are newly sober, really. Yes. I mean, you know, Absolutely. it hasn't even been a year. Yep. And um, to help someone that's possibly going through being newly sober or thinking about maybe I do have a problem. Yeah. How do you get through the day? And this is highly helpful to anyone with an addiction when you're like, you know what? This is a not a good day. I mean, yeah. welcome to life. As I always say, when things don't go our way, we have good days, we have bad days. Yeah. And how do you control yourself? Mm-hmm. And what do you say to yourself so that you don't go, you know what? I just would like to smoke just a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, for me, it was entering those 12-step rooms, uh, finding, for me, it was Marijuana Anonymous. There's really a 12-step program for just about anything, not just substances. There's Overeaters Anonymous. There's Eating Disorders Anonymous. There is Emotions Anonymous. That's something I didn't know about. Yeah. I didn't know about Uh, that either. mm -hmm. Codependence Anonymous. There's Al-Anon for those that are spouses or partners or or family members. Yep. Um, of, of substance users. There's also um, ACA, alcoholic children, um, adult, sorry, adult children of alcoholics. So there's a 12-step recovery program for just about anything. And um, I firmly believe that if everybody in the world went through the 12-step program, we would have world peace. I, I truly believe that. It's a great, it is a great program. I used to yeah. study um, PTSD. And of course, there's a 12-step program for that as well. And yeah, it is. I got to agree with you. It's a great method. (laughs) It is. And the reason why I say that is because, um, first of all, it creates this whole separation between you as an individual and then a group of people or a higher power or both, something greater than you. And so a lot of addicts love to control things and can be very self-involved, not saying selfish or necessarily self-seeking or that you're a bad person, but I'll just speak for me. I was definitely self-involved, especially when I was in my addiction, because I was constantly thinking about how can I feed my addiction, which was all about me. Um, So the, the, you know, going to the meetings is surrounding yourself in a community of people that says i'm not alone to to say to yourself i am not alone there are other people that get this and so it kind of takes the shame away then you're invited to you know talk and to to you know mention anything about your experience and that can also um, foster shame resilience uh, because if you speak it the it becomes less powerful it takes the power away um then you are encouraged to actually go through the 12 steps. And so I'm not going to go into the details of what all the 12 steps are today. Um, If you just do a Google search of 12 step recovery, you can find um, there's so much literature out there, especially if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, even if alcohol isn't your thing, they're the ones that started it. Right. Exactly. Um, But essentially you're saying like, 
hands up, I surrender. I, my life is no longer manageable. And that can be a very loaded phrase for a lot of people, but for me and scary scary. and scary, but that's why I felt like I needed to surrender and be like, well, what I've been doing, how I've been living my life isn't working for me. And I don't know how to get a handle on it. So technically I am not managing. I'm not managing things well It has become unmanageable. And there are, there's an aspect of surrendering to a higher power, which doesn't have to be God or a particular God. Um, so it's, it is not affiliated with religion, which a lot of people get a little bit confused. Um, it's a spiritual program, like, you know, uh, honoring the spirit within you, within a community, but it doesn't have to be a specific deity, just to be clear. Um, but it's basically just saying like, there is a world, there is an energy out there that is bigger than me. And I can tap into that, rely on that in order to help me get through this addiction, through this, this obsession, this compulsion. And, and then after you kind of go through those steps, you have to do work. And that is the thing that I think would bring world peace. If everybody just looked at their side of the sidewalk and looked at how can I clean up just my side of the sidewalk, not looking at your neighbors and saying, well, my side is a lot cleaner than theirs. No, no, no. Like if you have a speck of dust or a crumb on your part of the sidewalk, clean it up. And if everybody did that, we'd have clean sidewalks everywhere. And so you go through, the fourth step is going through a moral inventory of all resentments that you have, anything that you've done wrong, um, what your part was in, you know, a fight, an argument, um, in a quarrel, in um, anything. And you go through fears you've had, um, any misconduct that you've had. And so you're really doing kind of a an inventory of your life and how you've lived your life thus far and that takes a long time it typically takes months for most people i think that would be the average and so you are actually putting in the work to take a look at your life and how you've been living and that has nothing to do with religion but i am someone that has gone to church um like non-denominational church like god jesus centered just to be specific and going through the 12 step program was more church than I've ever gone to in my life. Absolutely. You just sit in the pews at church and you're listening to someone talk, but this is you show up every day, listening to someone talk, listening to the people around you, not just one guy or gal up front, but one guy or gal up front, plus other people around you sharing about their life experience. And you have to then after that do homework and you have to, again, look at yourself. And there are additional steps where you're doing, you know, work and you're understanding what your defects of character are and you can, you know, apologize and make amends to people if that makes sense. And you work with a sponsor. So you work with someone who is a couple steps ahead of you that has a little more sobriety than you that has actually gone through the 12 steps themselves who work actively on keeping their side of the sidewalk um, clean and they mentor you. You, they mentor you and there's someone that's like, yeah, I've been there. So, you know, there's no shame here, no judgment, like right. you take you that off the table. say anything, right. Yeah. And they're going to exactly. understand. Yeah. And so for me, that was a long way of, of answering your question. But for me, the way that I have stayed sober for the last eight months and, you know, 26 days, um, is by working the program, by showing up in meetings, by um, doing the work required and asked of me, by reaching out when I felt a craving or when I was just emotionally dysregulated. Um, And I also have gone to therapy and have done a lot of work on how to emotionally regulate myself. So now I have tools. So when I feel overwhelmed or anxious, I don't weed isn't the only option that used to be my only option. Now I have other options. Right. And that has been very, very helpful. So it's not just one thing, it's multiple things, but really it comes down to working the program. And, and that's such valuable information. And, you know, I, I find it, um, what I love about you, Amanda, is you're intelligent, you speak well, you're living this life with a husband and your two children. And so many people think, a different way of someone who's addicted. 
Yes. Oh, someone who's addicted is like a bum and they're on the streets or they're a hooker or they're, Mm -hmm. you know, in some kind of, you know, destructive profession or whatever. And the fact is (laughs) there are a lot of addicts out there and they come in all shapes and sizes and in all socioeconomic groups. And it, no one is, you know, no one is protected from it unless they learn their own ways and, you know, their own truths and, and understand their own emotions. I, I talk, when I talk with parents all the time, I say one of the important things of being a parent is that you have to help your children deal with their emotions, understand their emotions and regulate their emotions because that's not built into their brain. They have to learn. The only thing built into the brain is emotion. Yeah. And if if your self-regulation, if your logic, if those things are not taught to you when you are younger, you don't know what to do with those emotions. And very often addicts become addicts because they don't know how to deal with their emotions. Mm-hmm. So it is so important to understand that, you know, you may have challenges with certain things in your life and to really recognize that, well, I'm having this challenge, reach for help. I mean, that's, I, I always say that people that reach for help, that's the courage, that's yes. the strength. You don't reach for help. That's the weakness. You know, people yeah. are like, oh, I don't need any help. I, I don't have to ask for help. Why should I ask for help? You know, yeah. I, can, I can I can do it on my own. That's the weaker side. It is. Strength, the courage, the superpower is being able to ask for help. I agree. Good question. So you have two children and they have been through this with you knowingly or not knowingly because they're so little. Yes. What will you eventually say to your children about this? Or what have you already said to your children? Because at some point of time, you're going to have to talk to them about, you know, the world of, you know, drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I just did a podcast with a friend. We talked about pornography and all of these things Mm -hmm. that are out there in the world waiting for them to grow up and experience. And of course, we get to be our teenager years and the brain happily throws in risk into your brain. You get that risk, that hang out with friends that need to belong, all those little bonuses that the brain gives you as a teenager. What will you say to your kids about all this? Or have you thought about what you're going to say? <laughs> Am I, I putting- have. <laughs> no, no, no. I think this is a great question. And I have thought about it. And honestly, the first place where I started to think about it was before I got sober. And I felt a lot of about um, you know, smoking during nap time and being inebriated around my kids. And I thought about, I just had this moment of like, oh my gosh, in 10 years, when my daughter is a teenager, if she smokes weed, I will have no leg to stand on to say anything to her about it. And, and it's not going to be helpful if I'm like, well, I didn't start smoking till I was 18 when I was in college. So you should, I mean, that to me, I just started panicking when I had that thought of like, oh my gosh. And, you know, <laughs> life, childhood, it goes by the, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. And so I knew that if I didn't get a handle on this now, that I would be a hypocrite telling her or my little boy, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And that yet mommy's turning around and getting stoned at night. Um, so that did not sit well with me. Um, and so that was a big motivating factor for me getting sober. Um, now when I, well, also went through recovery, um, I had to tell my kids something because I actually went to a residential treatment program for 18 days. And that was the hardest part of my recovery process. And being away from my children for 18 days was heart-wrenching and it really it broke me um but i think that i needed to be broken to repair so it's an important part of my story and so that is when you know i just basically explained it as 
um, mommy is having a lot of trouble with my feelings. Like I'm having, um, I don't want to make as many red choices in their preschool. They, they say red choices and green choices. I want to learn how to make more green choices and be the best mommy for you. And so I am going to go to a place where there's really smart people that are really caring and they're going to teach me how to do that. Um, and so that's basically what was told to them before, what was told to them afterwards. And we still talk about it. Um, if they, if they bring it up, sometimes I'll bring it up, um, because I don't want them to think that it's not okay to talk about their feelings and, um, and be upset with me. You know, if I hurt them, if they missed me, if they didn't understand, like I want them to come to me and talk to me about those things. And as far as the future, um, I think that this is just a, a conversation that we'll continue to have for years and years. And, um, I'm going to, you know, need guidance along the way. And thankfully my husband and I have a therapist. I have my own personal therapist. I've got, we've got lots of <laughs> therapists um, in our family supporting us, thankfully that we have invited into our family to support us. And so I plan on seeking out wise counsel to ask them, when would it be appropriate to, you know, be a little more truthful or a little more real, a little more mature about the details of this. And so even though I don't have a specific plan, I have a plan to come up with a plan in a smart, wise, mature way. <laughs> well, of course, I would be remiss to to not say I offer my services. Thank you. <laughs> if you need. Thank you. <laughs> Some family coaching down the line. Yeah. But absolutely stay authentic with them. And I hope you do believe now that you do have a leg to stand on Yeah, because you've been through the worst of it. And, oh, yeah. you know, not many people have a lot of parents might just say, well, don't do it because, you know, right. it fries your brain and yeah. you'll have no brain cells. But, you know, you've been through the real life experience of it and you have every right to tell them about it. And it's, it's always very important to um, let children know that that you as a parent are human. Yeah. You know, we make mistakes and we get help and you got help. Yeah. And, you know, that then gives them permission to make mistakes, feel very healthy about it, get help, figure yeah. out a new plan, go, you know, down a new path. And that's all wonderful life lessons for them. As opposed to not talking about it and acting like it didn't exist. Exactly. And so, yes, I thoroughly advise you to talk about it age appropriate to them. Yeah. And as they get closer and closer and, you know, farther into school, you know, it's things show up so much earlier now. And a lot of that's the Internet. And a lot of that yeah. is kids learning stuff before they're, you know, ready to be learning stuff. And uh it's, you know, I advise parents to talk about things as early as they can, you know, don't wait for somebody to bring it up because then they're just going to go on Google and search for it. And who do you want them to learn from you or Google? And let me answer that for everybody that's listening. You want them to learn from you. Yes. So, you know, have those difficult conversations in my book, Raising Happy Toddlers. There's a whole chapter on having difficult conversations. Yeah. Because it's not easy. It's it's never easy, but it's always worth it. Oh, yeah. Well, Amanda, um, it's been such a pleasure. Is there anything that you want to say to the listeners um, before we end our conversation about any advice you have for somebody that's struggling with any kind of addiction and is thinking, do I have a problem? You know, where do I recognize this? And, you know, you've spoken about all the various anonymouses that they yes. can go to, but any last advice you have for them before we say goodbye? I don't know if it's advice, um, but just encouragement that if you are struggling at all with any type of substance use or abuse or, or a part of your life that you feel is just unmanageable, you're not alone. It's completely part of our human experience for many, many of There are supportive resources available to, to reach out to for help. And if you reach out for help and your intuition says that that is 
not the right uh, person, place, service, then keep looking and listen to your intuition. And please don't feel shame. Um, as Brene Brown says, shame is I am bad versus guilt is I did something bad. So sure, you can have some guilt about some red choices that you may have made, but you are worthy and um, there is help and hope for you. Absolutely. Great advice. Great advice. Well, again, Amanda is the host of Finding Your Village podcast. And why? Because you can find your village and it's just out there waiting for you. So, and absolutely, that was great advice. When you look for therapists or coaches or anything like that, find someone you mesh with, find someone yeah. who you feel comfortable with. Just don't go with the first person. Or if you start talking to someone and you just feel like, eh, this is not right you know, go with your gut feeling that it's probably not right because there's a person out there um, that will absolutely help you and that wants to help you. And um, like we said, it, it takes courage. It takes that strength and superpower to ask for help. So go ahead and ask for it because I think you'll be thrilled to be on the other side. Well, Amanda, so grateful that you are here with me and so grateful for the information. It's phenomenal. Check out her podcast, Finding Your Village. And we're going to close here. If you do need help from her, reach out. If you need help from me, go to talkwithcelia.com and let's just talk about it. And in the meantime, guys, as always, we'll say goodbye to Amanda. And I wish you days filled with peace, love, and tons of laughter because it really, really is the best medicine. So laugh a lot more. And I'll see you here next time on the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast and being a part of my mission to stop a million parents from yelling at their kids. Be sure to head over to pumpeduppparenting.com and grab your free copy of the Patient's Playbook. Wishing there was a manual for your toddler? Well, great news. Now there is. Pick up your copy of Raising Happy Toddlers, How to Build Great Parenting Skills, and Stop Yelling at Your Kids, plus my three new children's books at celiasbooks.com. That's celiasbooks.com. If you're loving this podcast, please feel free to share it with your friends and pay it forward. And also leave a review so I know who you are and can thank you personally. Tune in next time for more tips, advice, and strategies as you continue to pump up your parenting and create childhoods that everyone in your family can blossom from. Have yourself a really happy, fun day. Bye-bye.